0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered
0: your purchases made through our links, give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We are highlighting adaptations from season nine over at our originals page, thenextreelcom slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions.
0: We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood.
1: Robin and Marian was specifically based on the ballad, The
0: Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods.
1: We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel,
0: Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman.
1: The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical.
0: Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir.
1: And we looked at a trio of John le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
0: Plus, all three movies in our Agneska Holland series were based on books Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore.
1: La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's
0: original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series.
1: All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash Originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast.
0: Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash Originals. I'm Pete Wright. (laughs) And I'm Annie (laughs) Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Hudson Hawk is over. Bunny, ball, ball. Willis is back in business. Thanks for saving me, tough guy.
1: And business is booming. I was afraid you weren't going to drop by. Hudson Hawk.
0: That excites me
1: check please the best cat burglar that ever lived but he can't retire maybe nobody told you i quit stealing if he wants to
0: keep on living this is a brand new tuxedo watch your step hold your breath hang on for dear life and catch the hawk good play, junior bruce willis danny aiello andy mcdowell hudson hawk sounds like a party Andy, for the people, I just need to take a minute uh, out of our uh, usual TNR characters that we play on podcasts Mm. and ask you quite seriously, has anything like what happened tonight ever happened to us in the history of producing the next reel? Uh, That's a great question. I don't think so. It was a special (laughs) night tonight. It was a very special night. The special night is that Andy and I apparently only look at certain assets around the show. And so we watch different movies uh, to prep for tonight. And uh, Andy watched uh, Life of the Party, which... I think is going to be a great film, but I have never seen it because I was preparing for Hudson Hawk. And so for the first time, for you regular <laughs> listeners, in I think over 600 episodes of the show that we've done, over how many movies? 400 some odd movies that yeah, we've done? A lot done? of movies. Yeah. A lot of movies. I don't think we've ever watched the wrong movie because we had some <laughs> of our wires crossed. So Andy bit the bullet tonight. He had the time to go and watch Hudson Hawk. Thank you, Andy, for doing that. And uh, And now we're here. It was... One hour forty minutes. Later than we'd intended. <laughs> but you did it. You did it. And I'm proud of you. Thank you for doing that. And uh may it never happen again. Oh, you're here. here. <laughs> so here's the thing, Hudson Hawk, uh this is a start of our guilty pleasure series and uh the uh, for two thousand twenty. Uh very excited to make this nay a regular thing again. Oh I thought uh, you were just the... saying because it's for the decade. <laughs> we like to do yes, we like to do once a decade. <laughs> this is the twenty decade. <laughs> this is the twenty <laughs> <laughs> of the 2020s, and uh, we are talking about my pick for a guilty pleasure movie, Hudson Hawk. You just finished the movie. Do you want to give a, a quick uh, personal experience review?
1: I think that as the person who is guilty about it, I think uh-huh. you need to say something first.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let me. Why just Why is tell this, you this guilty for you? I- I'll tell you why. Because I watched it with my family, <laughs> <laughs> and and you can see where. You can see where, like, genetics has a role. I think genetics has a role in, in whether or not you're going to enjoy a movie. And and certainly it's the nature-nurture rule. I can see that my kids liked the movie um, more, I would say, than my wife did. Uh, there were laughs early on, and then there was some head-scratching. And I think of the four of us, I maybe got—I uh, I definitely brought up the average in terms of, of uh, <laughs> enjoyment of this movie. I think they fatigued from it. Uh, after about halfway through the movie, I think they got tired and I realized that right there is why this movie is a guilty pleasure. Uh, that it, I think, is challenging on a number of levels that I ha- I was able to get uh, to the other side of. I was able to climb that mountain and uh, I did not fatigue early on in my career with this movie. And so it has become something that's really special. I did not know quite. Because I wasn't really reading reviews at the time when the movie came out in 1991, and so uh, I, I did not have a sense of just how bad <laughs> this movie did in the in terms of critical consensus. And so I, you know, I just surveyed the critical response section of the Wikipedia page, and the quotes are, I, I think, define why this movie is a guilty pleasure. Um, it is. It it has an overwhelming dislike on Metacritic. Uh, cinema Score gives it a C C+. Uh, Terry Clifford said the end result is being thrown up on selected screens this weekend. And the suspicion that this was a pooch turns out to be undeniably correct. Boring and banal, overwrought and undercooked. Hudson Hawk is beyond bad. Uh, Kenneth Turan, Los Angeles Times. The saddest thing about Hudson Hawk is that director Lehman and co-writer's. Uh, Waters were previously responsible for the clever audacious Heathers, a film that represented all that is most promising about American film, while this one represents all that is most moribund and retrograde, Andy. Perhaps they both earned enough money here so that they won't be tempted to indulge themselves in similar big budget fiascos. Here's hoping. Ebert and Siskel give it two thumbs down. Uh, It is a disaster. Quote, every line starts from zero and gets nowhere and on and on and on a relentlessly annoying clay duck that crash lands in a sea of wretched excess and silliness those (laughs) willing to check their brains at the door may find sparse amusement that from variety at the time wow lots of love lots of (laughs) lots of (laughs) love lots of love from me even though andy even though so i ask you again how did it hit you
1: Okay so I have two things <laughs>
0: two two things
1: to say about this film one what what is this movie this was bonkers <laughs> and bananas <laughs> it was just I was like uh, wow this and and I had seen this before you you yeah, had yeah, yeah, me yeah. watch this in college yeah. like you were like this is my favorite movie. I think you actually had it in a chest, like a little holy chest in your room, <laughs> and you would you play some holy music and, and open it and take it I get, out. I had an old flashlight drilled it. in. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> and then we watched it, and I remember enjoying it then. And um, yeah, and so I would say bonkers, but I would also say I had so much fun with this.
0: <gasps> <room>. Oh, oh, <laughs> it's, yay! It's, it
1: well and you know it's one of those movies that i feel like it's it's going to hit you and it's either going to you're you're going to click with it or you're not and mm-hmm. it's 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 kind of like it's just it's this goofy insanity that it's just like i i don't know for me the beginning of the film starts with kind of an old disney fairy tale opening where you've got mm-hmm. the little book and the narrator talking and the book flips open and you know with no hands it just kind of opens and zooms in on the words and and you hear this narrator talking and introducing you to the story and it feels very much like a fairy tale and kind of it's it's done like a fairy tale in a really uh, absurd cartoony style and mm-hmm. i think that I, I just clicked with it 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 was loony it was goofballs it had really strange characters And uh, just really uh, kind of unforgettable characters, particularly in the villains. And a lot of moments that just seemed like, uh, I don't know, just just comedy bits that worked really well for me. So Mm -hmm. I had a great time with this one. I, I guess I would say, put me on the guilty train.
0: Oh, I call that a giant win. I was super nervous going into this. I'm thrilled to hear that I don't have to spend the next hour uh trying to convince you <laughs> <laughs> of why these things are fun. Uh but I do have some big questions. I have two big questions. And the first one is about uh movie marketing because so much of this movie back at the time was um many of the challenges were hung on the fact that the movie was marketed around uh, the next big action caper from Bruce Willis, right? That this was the yeah. next thing that was that was that was going to be, you know, at the trailer. You know, you look at the trailer and it's him with the, you know, shooting bazookas and and uh, like it's a it's swinging on the ropes and everything. And and uh, m- much of the the hilarity, the slapstick, the vaudeville stuff was not in the trailer. So the the first question is 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 part of the reason that the movie didn't do very well. Uh, the result of the fact that the, the critics didn't get what they were expecting. Uh, and so uh, I, I would say that rolls into the second question, which is the value of the star vehicle. Without Bruce Willis, would this movie have made it out of the pitch meeting?
1: Yeah, those are those are good questions. And I I, I think for the first question, the marketing is a huge factor. And I mean, that's definitely happened in Uh, in with other films where it's marketed one way people go to see it and it's not what they were told it was going to be and then the film just flops because of that now generally i like to think that critics are a little smarter than that but it's one of those things they often seem to prove themselves not quite so um so uh you know it's it's hard to completely uh, say that with them. I, I feel like uh, there is some of that, though, where they they probably bought into the Bruce Willis marketing and went in and saw this kind of uh, Looney Tunes uh, kind of cartoon with real people and didn't really get it. And I mean, it again, it is one of those. It's a big film with lots of big performances and stuff going on and i i also can kind of get it because it's i think for some people they're just not going to click and whether it's whether they're fans of bruce willis or not they're just you know that kind of over the top cartoon comedy i i think is hard for some people so it's one of those things i think the marketing definitely had a factor to it but also i think it is kind of a uh it may be a little more of a niche type of movie
0: yeah, is that I, fair I, to say? I, I think that's fair to say, and and I I actually think that on that note, Andy, I, can we talk just a bit before we go into the the elements of the movie? Can we do our getting it made section first? I think it matters. Sure. Today. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, so much of getting this made is it hinges on Bruce Willis, and I'll say generously some ego, uh, and you know it's Hollywood. What are you going to do? That's that's sort of table stakes. The the uh, this movie was originally written by uh, Stephen D'Souza. He writes this pretty straightforward caper for Bruce Willis. And, and he gets, they're all in Italy. The team is in Italy, not D'Souza. They all go to Italy to shoot. And Willis gets news that Bonfire of the Vanities, which is under audience testing at that time, was testing off the charts for Willis. And so they call Willis and they say, hey, you're testing off the charts. We're going to recut Bonfire of the Vanities to get you more screen time. Willis turns around and leverages this newfound credibility to bring on Daniel Waters, who's another uh, screenwriting partner, and he starts his round, his Willis's round of rewrites on this film. So now Willis, with new credibility built off of bonfire tests, is rewriting D'Souza's straightforward caper into something that he, Willis, really wants to see. In this in this thing. And that's when things get crazy. So the studio calls D'Souza and they say, hey, we're going to send you to Italy. We're going to send you to Italy specifically to, quote, take the pencil out of Bruce's hand. So D'Souza goes. He goes to Italy. And and Joel Silver, producer, says, uh, you can't you can't tell him that uh, because we work for Bruce. Bruce hired us. We don't work for for the studio right now. So if the studio wants to take the pencil out of his hand, they have to send an executive over here to do it directly. So the studio sends an executive over to Italy to get the job done. But the guy shows up, spends three days looks at some shoots, uh, it goes on set, they do. They film one of the robbery scenes with no dialogue, and then the guy goes home, says there's an emergency, I gotta go home. Nobody ever tells Bruce to stop writing the movie, says D'Souza, and also then essentially directing the movie. So the movie becomes the movie that Bruce wanted to make. The whole thing with they rob according to songs, all of these things are things that he wanted to do uh, specifically. So, Around this movie and the making of this movie and how the movie turned into what it was, this is, uh, I-, I think, the sole project of Bruce Willis's vein of comedy and and sort of action comedy. This is what he wanted out of this thing. So, um, you know, to the extent that it is uh, an acquired taste or that it's a niche project, as you say, I think that's a really good uh, way to look at it. If you like Bruce Willis's sense of comedy. Uh then this is your, you know, this is your spirit
1: movie. Which is funny because I I mean, I I don't I off the top of my head, I can't think of too many comedies that Bruce Willis has done, but he came from TV doing moonlighting, which was right. pretty funny. And so it's kind of a, an odd uh I don't know. I get it's funny that this ends up saying or kind of speaking to audiences saying this is Bruce Willis. Uh, this, this is his comedy.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Like mm-hmm.
1: like this if you want funny Bruce Willis and if you want to know what Bruce Willis thinks is funny, check this movie out.
0: <laughs> well, and if if you'd like to see Bruce Willis uh, it, with a screenwriting credit, right? I mean, yeah. you'll you'll note in his hundred twenty five some odd credits, this is his big screenwriting credit. He's not yeah. a guy who goes back to to the pen uh, after this. So, uh, I I think that is. Uh, I, I think that's a really interesting take on it. And I happen to be a guy that I, I really connect with Bruce Willis's vibe, like in, especially in moodlining. And and in Die Hard. You get it all, all the time, right? You get this. The whole world is falling apart around me. But I have some quirky witticism. I have some facial expression. I have some like a yippee-ki-yay line that is going to reset the world in a way that that I can approach again. And I find that brand of humor. I find it uh, a great affinity to that. And so this movie is nonstop, uh, you know, direct to the vein, that kind of comedy it's comedy that is avant-garde it's comedy that tests uh the uh the your acceptance of bending space time <laughs> right it's comedy that <laughs> uh that is it's it, i mean if ever there was a movie that for me successfully puts a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat it's this movie in terms of it, its comedy stylings and um for me it's a constant ride that is eminently quotable and and super fun and so I'm with you. I get why others don't don't like it, but I think it's important to understand, like who this really comes from, and and why it turned into you know what it turned into. This is a this is a very much a personal project. Well, and I think your note
1: about the uh, the way that they marketed it as kind of this Bruce Willis action movie after uh coming right on the heels of Die Hard 2 and mm-hmm. audiences wanted more of that and they mm-hmm. really pushed that in all of their marketing you can see how they recognized the failure uh, because even the the um the poster said catch the uh, catch the excitement catch the adventure catch the hawk
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then when it was released on back at the time VHS they changed that to catch the adventure, catch the laughter, catch right. the hawk, because they were like it, they it, they were trying to catch that tone. And it ended up becoming rather successful on home video. And it kind of found its its niche audience and it ended up uh, really kind of uh, eventually getting to a point where profit uh, ended up getting paid to the various actors. So, uh, so it, it ended up working. It just didn't work the way that they initially attacked it.
0: Well, I'm. That I feel like you just spoiled it a little bit. The conversation, and I'm so excited to hear that we might have a non-negative APPFM. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I don't take video into account. Uh, we'll have to Andy. see. Oh, the tension. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, right. let's let's uh, start walking through some of the some of the individual beats. You want to talk uh, high level? We'll talk a little bit about the cat burglar story um, and introducing the hawk yeah let's
1: just kind of go through it i mean it's it's a funky story and it kind of uh it has a lot of uh little bits of absurdity all throughout so sure
0: all right. Well, I I think you know you've already set up the Da Vinci thing a little bit. I mean, it starts with this fable. We we uh, open up, and I I don't think people expected in a Bruce Willis cat burglar story to to be to open on Da Vinci's lab, and and in this case, Leonardo da Vinci is uh, painted as uh, essentially uh, what would you say a cue from James Bond, but <laughs> like also painting the Mona Lisa. <laughs>
1: yes, right, right. But can I just can I just say that? <laughs>
0: Well, it, right
1: out of the gate, you know, it has this narrator talking and he's talking yeah. about Leonardo da Vinci and and he's making this horse and all this sort of stuff. And he says, and that guy in the donkey, he's just a guy on the donkey <laughs> <laughs> and, because we're looking at a guy on a donkey. Yeah. And we follow this guy on the donkey until, uh, you know, da Vinci has an accident in his lab up on the hill at the top of where this guy on mm-hmm. the donkey is knocking the guy in the donkey off. And then the guy in the donkey proceeds to stand up and yell at Da Vinci for all of his crazy uh, nonsense. He's yelling at him in Italian. So, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that sets up, I don't know. It was like, this is the comedy. This is what you're going to be expecting in this.
0: Right. Well, and I, I because I don't think we're going to talk about him again. I will say he's credited as a guy on a donkey, and it's Remo Romani, and uh, that's the extent of it. But I love that he actually made it to the credits, so that's pretty good. That's fantastic. Uh, so, so that sets up our our backstory, and the backstory is Leonardo. He invents. We see him inventing and using. We gather for the first time the gold machine, Almacina del Oro, and uh, he is has figured out a way to convert lead into gold. And this was all in an effort to. Actually turn lead into bronze uh, because there was a um, there was run the on bronze because of the, yeah. of the uh, uh, military action. And so um, so he invents this way to turn it. And so it turns out what hinges the, there's a tiny piece uh, that is actually made up of three pieces of this mirror, a spiky mirror thing that's broken up into three pieces. And that crafty Leonardo, he actually puts those things into three of his prized uh, works. And that is the sort of the soul of the cat burglary story is we have to collect those things. We have to steal them. Uh, Can I
1: just say, yeah, I don't know how it fits in the book.
0: (laughs) I know. Like
1: that is like (laughs) or the model. Like it's this (laughs) giant, chunky mirror star, like three dimensional thing. Like
0: how, how does that, how did you pull that out of the back of a book? 500 years. Nobody has ever turned patch page 38. (laughs) Like, how does that work?
1: Where's the hollow? Where oh, is the gosh. hollow? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh,
0: so that was one, and it's in the bottom of the helicopter uh, machine, flying machine, and it's in the uh, horse things, uh, the, um, the exhibit, right? The da Vinci Schwarza, <laughs> right? And so at the auction, and so those are the those are the three things that um, that are uh, main antagonists. Want to have stolen, and uh, that takes us to Bruce Willis. He is just getting out of prison. It's the day he's getting out of prison, and this is when I, uh, I just I fall in love with this character. I want to be this guy. He gets out of prison. He has the hat and the long black trench coat, and he puts his own probation officer uh, in, locks him out. I mean, it's just it, it, of the thing, and throws the keys in the mop bucket. And I mean, this is when prisons had keys, man. That's class. That is all class. Uh, and, and so that's what we made him. And he's just, he's so cool. He's just so cool. And this is Bruce Willis cool. And I think he does it. I think he does it very well.
1: Call he's cool there. until he hears the backfiring car and throws himself down on the ground. <laughs> so and cool. and that, so it's, you know, he's, it's the, it's the typical, I'm cool, but I'm still you know, gonna be the guy who gets thrown to the ground to uh, pay for that, make that joke work. You know, and so he's gotta it's, make the joke work. Yeah, yeah, and so I like that about him.
0: Well, also Pretty because good. cool, cool is relative, right? Like he's cool, he's also a thief. There is there is some uh, archetype uh, at, at play here. the The thief is the you know, it's the the hide in shadows, it's the you know, take only calculated risks kind of character, and I I think he's he he kind of plays true to that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Right. Right. So 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 they he gets out and immediately they want uh, the bad guy or some of these some of these bad guys, the mafia guys want him to steal uh, something from this auction house. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they're working apparently in conjunction with his probation officer because he also is trying to um, blackmail him into doing that while he was still. I'm getting released from prison. Mm-hmm. And he says no. But then he and his partner, Danny Aiello, who is uh, just great as his buddy, uh, decide to go do it anyway. And they they go into motion to make this thing happen.
0: They do. And, and they end up going through the the cat burglary scene or the, the actual stealing is gets to one of the major uh, major sort of narrative elements of the movie. And what I think the movie is known for, which is uh, that they, in order to keep time with each other doing the job, they sing to themselves and uh, they know all of the times to all of these classic songs. And so, you know, uh, Five Minutes and Change you know, swinging on a star. And that happens to be the song that they're singing while they steal the Da Vinci Schwarza, And it makes this movie a musical. Uh, and I <laughs> think it works. I will say that none of the times match and I don't think anybody cares. I don't think anybody's supposed to care, but I did do the work at one point <laughs> of actually seeing if the times line up certainly with what they spent in the movie. And it does not. Um, but in in this case, I almost feel like we need a Hudson Hawk trope corner because we do get some great cat burglary tropes. We get the uh, rewinding videotape trope. We get the sleeping yep. uh, police uh, uh, security officer trope. Yep. We get uh, I, there. There are a number of them that I think are are um, executed comically uh, in in this film and uh, and in this scene. So I will ask you, as somebody now I realize who likes this movie, you think that the musical elements work to effect?
1: I think that's one of the the things that gives it its charm is the fact that these are cat burglars, but here they are breaking in using song, you know, and it's really kind of clever to have them singing a tune while they go about their heist, which we don't see ever. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen that with a heist film, and it makes it really fun, and it it kind of just gives it a beat, it moves things along, and this is one of those movies where, and speaking of tropes, where The people just have, like, their crazy Mission Impossible types of tools that they can do stuff with, right? Mm -hmm. When he's breaking into the Vatican to steal the uh, Da Vinci's codex it's i don't i don't even know what it is but it's it's some sort of device that he rigs up that blocks the lasers so that he can kind of get in and work on getting the glass out of where the codex is the which is like the big book inside and so it it's just some these funky things that these types of burglars have that just seem so nonsensical but in context of the movie it ends up working and Paired with the singing and everything else that these two are doing, like riding on skateboards down the hallway, it ends up just kind of creating this whole world that it all works. So I I think it's almost an essential element to make this film work the way it does.
0: And in fact, I'll go one further and I'll say, I think they needed more music. Uh, I, I think it's fine. The first and then the last song, I think gets cut up too much by this, by the action. Like they don't actually <laughs> sing the song straight through. And I think it would have been better if it, if it had been cut uh, straight through. But I could have used a song for the third, for the second, uh, for the second steal. Um, because, you know, they True. make such a big deal that that's how he keeps time. Why isn't he singing? Uh, and so I, I think they went back to maybe the D'Souza version of that theft uh, with no singing, using the craft of cat burglary with the mirrors and the jumper cables and the olive oil and the fishing rod and all of those things. Um, and I think, the, I think that sequence is, is worse for it, at least comically speaking.
1: Yeah, and also it's one of those things where he puts together a list of just kind of absurd things like that you just rattled off. Mm -hmm. But do we see him use all of that in a way where it's like, oh, okay, that was what that was for. And that was what that was for. or Because I know he's like pouring stuff on to kind of pull the glass off and he has the little walls that he puts up and stuff. But did we actually see all those bits and pieces and go, aha.
0: That's a great question. Hang on one second, because I think I can think I can tell you this. Olive oil. Make that list happen. So, uh, grapple biker. So, the grapple he uses to get uh, the like the grappling hook he uses yeah. to get in and out. The biker's bottle he fills with olive oil. The hairspray he sprays in the air to, uh, to show the lasers. The lasers. Okay. Right? The jumper cable he uses to connect the two mirrors that he takes off the walls from in the actual museum. Uh, the collapsible yardstick he uses to keep them a uniform distance uh, from one another, the two mirrors from one another, and Gret uses okay. the, the things. Uh, the softball, I think he ties the softball to the the fishing hook to throw it into the, or maybe he uses that. No, to that's what he throws up through the glass to get him out of the central column. A uh, hundred stamps he uses to, and this is, elemental (laughs) to bruce willis comedy he mails himself into the vatican putting a hundred stamps on a giant box and then we see him in the subway and that i took me uh several viewings to realize that he had actually used a hundred stamps to mail himself into the (laughs) thing and a large bottle of olive oil which obviously he uses so um so yeah he does he uses the stuff that he asks for okay what was the olive oil used for he puts the olive oil in the biker's bottle and then he sprays the olive or he squirts the olive oil out of the bikers bottle on the uh, um, on the floor. And that is what the mirrors slide on. It was to to make the floor. Slippery. OK, so and then, what
1: does he do to get the glass off?
0: He just lifts it off. You just see him in that scene. He's just lifting it off. I don't know how he yeah, gets okay. that. Oh, okay. no, it was, I, I forgot one. The pocket fisherman. He uses the pocket fisherman to wedge the frame off. Uh, okay, so that he can okay. get the mirrors down. So that's uh, the... There is one... Oh, no, he uses this too. The acid, right? Because okay, yeah, that's on right, the list. Right. So that,
1: that dissolves the glass. That dissolves glass. The, the glass, yeah. And then so what grapple. does he use to hook the book out?
0: That was the, that, uh, that the pocket fisherman. No, that was the pocket fisherman. Okay, okay. The fishing rod, right? Okay,
1: that's so, good. Yeah. All right, so you you done well. you done well. So it really... It, it, he ends up becoming a MacGyver as well, Yes. Right? He's yeah. just as much... <laughs> kind of using random things to kind of put this whole thing into action which is yes. pretty cool. It makes it fun.
0: I think so too. I think it's really fun and um uh and at least notable that everything he uses everything in the scene. So that was yeah, that right. was nice. Um so all built into here we do have our uh, romantic interest, Andy McDowell, uh-huh. the dolphin seductress uh nun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> She is in this scene first, uh, The Nun. Now, Annie McDowell was coming off of... um, she's uh, Reading up about Annie McDowell, it seems like people don't like her as much as I like her. I actually quite like her, and I know that there are... I don't know, there's probably some... But we've talked about her before. We did Groundhog Day. This movie was still pretty early in her film career. uh, Although, don't even get me started on... That kiss in Saint Elmo's fire on the car. I have watched that about three times today. Uh, but then she she went on from that. She did a TV series, uh, Secret of the Sahara, uh, so a little bit more TV. But then uh, what I remember her for quite fondly, Sex Videotape. She was fantastic. Uh, then she did Green Card. Eh, it was fine. Object of Beauty, and then Hudson Hawk. So this was still a couple of years before we see her in Groundhog Day. Early in her film career, um, do you think she is unfairly uh, maligned? I can see why she is. You know, she she's an actress
1: that uh, she can come across. And, and I'm, it's funny that you like her so much because I think she has that Kevin Costner charm that some people are really bothered by. <clears throat> hmm <laughs> Where where they come across a little cardboard, you know. And, I would just and, have to
0: say, like, have they ever done a movie together? Because that would be the only true way to test.
1: <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> we need to make sure that happens before they're
0: both uh, <laughs> Andy McDowell and Kevin Costner star in the Lumberyard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that's, I think, people's problem with her is she kind of delivers lines in kind of a as a kind of a a, a way that feels a little. Uh, static, mm-hmm. and while I may not have many problems with her, I can see it sometimes. Like there's one scene in here, and unfortunately, I can't remember which one. But she she came across a little stiff. Um, I, I think it it holds true with a lot of her roles, but in general, I do kind of enjoy her. I think she's fun to watch on screen, and she had uh, a moment that I think I don't know. I it it totally won me over. It's when he's he first. She saves him from the, uh, you know, when he's doing the little test in the Vatican to see kind of exactly how everything works. And so she take, saves him by pulling him down into the underground where they have the Vatican mail train, which is kind of an odd thing. And that, remind me, I have a question about that. And then she, and then he, he leaves. And suddenly she goes up to this cross <laughs> and was just like, I, I can't remember exactly what she said. You probably have it written down, but something about like, you know, the, oh this guy's going to be trouble or something or I feel something so bad about him. And then also the Jesus Cross is like lighting up the talking to her. <laughs> like, what the heck? <laughs> it was really funny, and it would just it fit in this like crazy, wacky world where now the Vatican has its yes. own spies involved in this whole thing. So
0: That works on so many levels For me when she, she comes out to says father, it's obvious he's up to something. Right. So she starts saying, Father, yeah. it's obvious. And she's talking to very clearly a cross. And then what you or hear crucifix, is we a crucifix. Yeah, it is a crucifix. And then, and then the way it's credited in the script is, uh, it is credited to Jesus and it says, Report downstairs at once. So it's, it's the Jesus crucifix statue that says, Report downstairs at once. And I think that is super charming. Um, and, um, uh, Yes. And, and I so actually funny. like the production design of that, that it, the way it lights up and, and uh, it's it's very um, it's like the voice of the crackly voice of doom. <laughs> some might say God, yeah. but yes. Well, and, and you know, <laughs> some might say, but then she goes downstairs. Come on, man. This is all about uh, this is all a play on the, the Ninth Circle. So that that takes us. She goes downstairs. And the first thing that the cardinal says, the cardinal is actually the voice that she was saying, is did he mention the Mayflowers? So that right. introduces us to another new group of villains. So the, the, our cup runneth over with villains in this movie. So many of the villains.
1: But it's a a story that kind of keeps folding on itself because we have these mafia guys at the beginning that are – well, first, let's back up. We have the probation officer who is in on something, leads us to the mafia brothers. And I love that Frank Stallone was one of them. That just uh, made me chuckle. Uh, And then from there, we end up meeting the – I can't remember what they call them, but the candy bar Group that that's the, a, yeah yes this candy boys in the CIA
0: yeah, yeah.
1: um and which uh, helmed by uh, uh, Char- uh, James Coburn who is just fantastic in this kind of goofy spy role because you know he did goofy spy movies and it, it was great to see him kind of in that and then we yeah we get to meet the the bonkers Mayflowers and then of course Andy McDowell and the the Vatican the spy people. It's this huge thing of all these people who are kind of being in on this thing in one way or another. But, of course, it is Richard E. Grant who is the one who comes out when he, uh, he grabs uh, uh, Hudson Hawk, pulls him into his limo, and says, What can I tell you? I'm the villain. <laughs> <Which> just, <laughs> you, I, just the fact that you get that out of his mouth was uh, fantastic. I mean, he's yeah. got, boy... I don't know what he and Sandra Bernhardt were were taking when they made this movie, but they are so over-the-top bonkers. It is—it's just—I I was waiting for them to be on screen, like, because I'm like, give me more of them, because they're so yeah. crazy.
0: It was great. Well, okay, Andy, and th- I 100% agree with you on this, but I have to ask, uh, first— villain that was that the the part was originally written for was Joss Ackland. Uh and you know he's been in a bunch of stuff of note. He is definitely a face if you don't know the name, but oh man, Lethal Weapon 2 when he screams diplomatic immunity. Uh that is one of those iconic performances. So I could kind of see him there, although I feel like that would have been the uh, the expected route, you know, the vaguely international uh, 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 older male bad guy.
1: It feels like the Stephen E. D'Souza route.
0: Yes, exactly. And then, according to uh, layman, Audrey Hepburn was in contention as the female wow. villain, right? Holy cow. That would have been maybe something. Uh, but again, that's a D'Souza thing. Like, let's make this a serious play for for uh villainy here and let's do something, you know, that, that people wouldn't expect, wouldn't see coming. And it was in fact, again, Bruce who, who munged the two together in the scripts. He's, he, you know, he, he says, let's take the guy from the first draft and the girl from the second draft and make them a couple. And that is what ultimately lost Audrey. Uh, so I'm a little torn because I do love the Mayflowers. And I think as a couple, they, they play off of one another. So, so well in exactly the movie that we got. Uh, But in another version of Hudson Hawk in another universe, I can sure see Audrey Hepburn as the female villain.
1: Well, and, you know, that's one of those frustrating things because, of course, if we had the D'Souza version, the original just straight thriller version Mm -hmm. that had those villains, uh, Ackland and Hepburn, as a really interesting but, you know, devious a uh, pair of villains in a serious uh, kind of spy thriller—it probably would have worked. Mm-hmm. We didn't get that version, though, and uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Like, it would be really interesting to see what that version uh, looks like. But uh, and I don't know if if the original script is around. But now I'm curious because I I wonder how it reads. It would be a really interesting thing to kind of check out. But I I I, I yeah.
0: I mean, I I like that
1: as an idea, but. I can't help but really enjoy what they did here with these guys.
0: Yeah, uh, the the script that we have in the show notes is uh revisions by Dan Waters and uh it's the July 2nd 1990 uh version which uh it includes the Mayflowers. So we don't have any of the the original De Souza uh you know villainy in here, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, well, but we do have did. Butterfingers. Can I just say? I'm sorry, I don't mean to take <laughs> it off the Mayflowers, but I got your stamps. <laughs> you made it come out my nose. <laughs> He's <is> a great character.
1: <laughs> uh, okay. Well, what a goofy guy. What okay. a goofy group all of the candy bars are. You know, uh, Don Harvey as Snickers. David Caruso, surprisingly, as mm-hmm. Kit Kat. And uh, always surprising, um, popping up the way he did. Uh, Andrew Brinyarski Brun- as Butterfinger, and Lorraine mm-hmm. Toussaint as Almond Joy. Uh, I just
0: well, <laughs> endless, I, I think they endless they, fun watching them. They do such a good job of of lampooning each of their own sort of special brand of um, you know government agent. But I think uh, David Caruso's weird because David Caruso has ha, you know he he uh, I don't know it's so easy to. Pick on David Caruso, I think. Um, But uh, this movie, I think he actually has uh, one of the best roles amongst the CIA because he is lampooning like that deep cover. I will I'll do anything agent. And so he's constantly in these progressively more uh, like just absurd uh disguises whether he's you know he's he's dressing first i think he's dressing like hudson hawk then he's he is uh dressing as uh, like uh andy mcdowell's character <laughs> and then he's he's dressed as a statue right. <laughs> and, like, it's just one thing which you don't even like, realize
1: is you know is a, is him yeah. until they ask him a question
0: oh it's just really great it's really really great so uh perfect stereotypes
1: it And, it, it, you know, it kind of, he kind of, he worked for me, but also I was just like, I kept expecting because he would dress like them. I kept expecting a scene to happen where somebody was interacting with who they thought was Hudson or, uh, or Anna. And then it turned out that it was actually him. So, you know, it, I kind of was waiting for that because they set it up and I'm like, well, is yeah. that going to go anywhere? It was kind of, a well, that was a little weird for me.
0: I you know I get that and it's probably one of those things that I having never thought about now it's the only thing I'm going to be able to think about. So thanks for ruining the movie You're for welcome. me. Andy, that's great. You're welcome. welcome. it for me. So careful. Um okay, so back to the Mayflowers, we have this fantastic relationship between Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard. Uh, I uh, I happen to like Richard Grant more than Sandra Bernhard. I think she's uh, she's fine in it, but it's it's Grant that uh yeah, really, really sells it for me and um his the glee that he gets i mean he's such a little pervert the glee that he gets every time she smacks hawk and you watch him just sort of get a little oh, rush out of it uh <laughs> I, I mean the way he uses his face this is um it's almost unfortunate that this role exists for richard grant because i can't see him in anything else and not expect this not expect a little bit of darwin mayflower
1: yeah right Uh, just like i mean what he well they walk in their introduction is just brilliant because they're so over the top when they actually walk into the auction and they're Mm -hmm. just absurdly huge to the point where it's just so ridiculous but it's it, it worked and then but when they take hudson and they go to their i don't know their Uh, kind of their corporate headquarters and they go into the boardroom and there's kind of all of the sinister people sitting around the table and he's talking to them all and he's talking to Hudson who's kind of chained up to a chair and then he's kind of explaining his backstory and what he's looking for and his goals and stuff and then he like steps onto the table in the funniest (laughs) way and he's just like, world domination! (laughs) It was like, Wow. (laughs) there's there's no holding back here and uh, yeah I don't think I've seen this much uh explosive energy from Richard E. Grant before but
0: well I, and and credit to Dante Sp- Dante Spinati on the camera I mean they they crafted some just exceptional character uh, camera work, like there, nobody else gets the kind of camera attention that Richard E. Grant does. Right, those, those shots that uh, capture the entire length of his arms. Right, so you get them uh, practically touching the lens. So it just feels like he is fifty feet tall, and I, I think that does so much to accentuate just how big he thinks his character is. How big in the world of Hudson Hawk? How big he is. Uh, I think it's it's uh, it's really uh, uh just dynamic uh visual storytelling on top of some of the best lines uh, in the movie i mean uh there's nothing more i hate than failure all you had to do was follow the hawk it's not like i said teach our nations children how to read <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm uh it had to be fun writing that it really did uh, truly <laughs> so uh two points that i wanted to go back to that uh that i i mentioned in passing one the 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 pope vatican underground mail rail yes uh, do you know in any of your research or anything did they base anything in the vatican on any reality at all or was all this made up because i'm like i wonder if they really have like this train system under the vatican to get mail around because i mean obviously rome can be a difficult city to get around sometimes
0: do you know there is a, a Vatican railway uh, that are it's uh, apparently I looked this up, too, because it it does exist. It's a 300 uh, meter uh, rail uh, and it has two, uh, they call them freight sightings. Right. So they get things in and out of the uh, from the Italian rail network into the the um, system for the, the Vatican. Um, I couldn't figure out if it was anything more than just a system of straight rails like it's just in and out and so it stops well, in the end you of the said tunnel 300 meters
1: so that's like super short yeah it's like really it short nowhere.
0: it's like there's a wall and it goes through the wall and then there are some sidings so the trains can pass one another like if it, it's not a big it's not a big thing so
1: okay okay uh, so really they load stuff in and it goes inside take them into that unload city, it, it and they, and they take it, it and out. they
0: send the train back out to the italian wow okay really yeah. short there there have been periods where uh, the uh, the system has been used for passengers, but that was very short. So
1: like illegal people packing themselves up in boxes, sorts of passengers. Or actual <laughs> no, like paying no, to is, take a trip to the Vatican? Yeah, paying to take a
0: trip into the into the thing. So I see. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it's it's they've been going at it since it looks like what is it, nineteen fifteen, something like that? okay um, so yeah
1: gotcha there you go all right so that's that's one. Second one um i i want to talk about the tone of the film because yeah. this film does take some interesting shifts at times where it seems very jokey it has this fairy tale feel but then you have all of a sudden like bursts of violence like real bloody shocking violence that makes you go whoa what is going on with this movie first we have the butler Uh, who is Alfred, the butler, which was great, who has, like, knives in his sleeves, which is just kind of some weird spy thing that he does. But you get this strange, like, knife... POV shot as he pops the knife out of his arm and then the the camera as the knife whisks past uh, the probation officer's throat and slices it open and you get kind of a blood splash and everywhere. And I'm like, well, that was kind of sudden and weird that that mm-hmm. just happened. And then you start getting exploding people. And I don't think it's the person, but the way that they do the effect, it's actually like a, a person model that it blows up. I think the first time it happens is at the auction. And it's, I think the idea is it's supposed to be the horse that is fake that mm-hmm. blows up, but it just makes, the the way that they do it, it's like this fake person, um, the, the uh, auctioneer who actually blows up and kind of creates this explosion. And then it happens later as well. We get another exploding person And uh, I I think it's that wasn't
0: that was that was Snickers getting one of the sticky bombs on his forehead. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty gruesome. And when that one blows up, you see body parts, you see, you know, dismembered hands and feet flying in the in the explosions. Actually, it's a it's a solid effect.
1: Yeah, right, and and likewise, when the butler finally, when when Hudson finally defeats the butler, uh, he mm-hmm. kind of gets his head chopped off with his own blades, and his uh, head yes. goes rolling across the
0: room. So it's, well, it's and don't forget, an odd, we, Minerva Mayflower gets gets showered in her own liquid gold.
1: Yes, right. That's pretty and, horrifying and then darwin gets uh electrocuted by his yep. system too so
0: there's there's a lot
1: of violence and in kind of this looney tune-esque fashion, I guess you could say it works because they're all pretty over-the-top types of deaths, but at the same time, it's also um, there's a lot of blood, (laughs) and it is R-rated, not just for language, but also for these things. And so, I guess that's another question. When you're doing a movie like this that is so over-the-top and goofy, does it work to also make it so bloody and kind of uh, you know a little kind of R-rated
0: on the violent side? I, well, Obviously, for me, obviously, you, it works you for can, you. <laughs> yes, uh, but but I will say that's a, I think that's a legitimate criticism and I think it comes as a surprise. And I wonder if that's, though, not something that we could levy against a movie like Kingsman, uh, the Secret Service. Sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. the same kind of thing. We have that sort of uh, I- irreverent humor, spy stuff. And then uh, just. Unfathomable violence <laughs> against humanity uh, that that happens in in bursts and and so it, it's not like this this movie was setting any records for it but I do think that added to the confusion of how to approach this movie both uh, from a, a general audience perspective and and certainly from a critical perspective I I just I think that makes it harder to figure out how what bucket to put this in
1: yeah that's it, and I think that likely also made audiences struggle when it came time to deciding what they thought of the film because Mm -hmm. it would take those real odd tonal shifts and uh, yeah i mean for me i I, I, we've talked about a few films uh, i can't think of any right now but that have had tonal shifts like that where it feels really kind of high on the comedy but then all of a sudden it's like over-the-top violence and it's like this strange uh, kind of imbalance it seems but in a weird way it kind of fits and i think in context of this, uh, this story, it, it does work in a way. And so I, I don't have, I don't end up walking out with problems, but I can see that it's something that might, uh, that might bother some people.
0: Did you read up on clock punk?
1: You know, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't too much, but I, I did find, uh, this film described as kind of a clock punk, uh, kind of film. And I'm like, clockpunk? I've heard of steampunk. What is clockpunk? And I guess it's a derivative of kind of the whole cyberpunk thing as a kind of its own subgenre. And and clockpunk, clockpunk is specifically uh, kind of a renaissance era science and technology where you're taking these pre-modern designs and uh, you're kind of doing stuff with it and they kind of say it's kind of steampunk without the steam mm-hmm. is a way to describe it and so i think by using a lot of this stuff this da vinci stuff that these guys are are doing and kind of the funky machine the the you know machina del oro as uh as darwin describes it it's um that kind of fits in this like this funky machine that i mean honestly is that really going to work no it but it looks really cool in context yeah. of what they're doing for the story so i guess that's what it is but i mean geez, i didn't realize how many different uh, derivatives there were i mean biopunk nanopunk post cyberpunk uh steampunk dieselpunk clockpunk mm-hmm. as i said atompunk steelpunk rococo punk <laughs> deco punk <laughs> stone punk ray punk now punk i mean it's it's crazy. There are a it's lot just, of
0: punks. I think the I, I, I think the only challenge I have with that is that the, this movie came out in ninety one, and the word steampunk only was popularized in nine in eighty seven. Um, but
1: cyberpunk had been around, and it's they're all derivatives of
0: cyberpunk, right? Yeah, but if you're gonna say that clockpunk is a derivative of steampunk, uh, it's, I, it's, no, just, it's it's it feels a like of... it's retroactive continuity. <laughs> it's, uh, no, I don't think I don't... anybody was intending.
1: I um, no I might have I might have yeah. misspoken cuz I don't know all the differences. It's a derivative of cyberpunk. Yes. Not, all of not that not is of a derivative of of cyberpunk. It's not yeah, it's not a derivative of steampunk. But Oh, I thought you said it, that
0: clockpunk was steampunk without the steam.
1: It is, but it's not a derivative of steampunk. Oh, like okay. since then, now that's what people say about it.
0: There's so many I didn't punks. Either. There are a lot of punks out there. And uh, to see them listed sort of takes all of the weight out of them. <laughs> all of them
1: they suddenly mean nothing. Uh, this is a very minor note, but it, it, we didn't bring it up when you were doing the history and the backstory. But yeah. we just have to say, boy, Bonfire of the Vanities, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, can I read? I, I didn't read this quote. Right, All of this that I got was taken from a 30th anniversary event for The Running Man, and it was, it was D'Souza telling the story of how Hudson Hawk changed. And so there's a passage from this that I, I didn't read. There is some colorful language in it. So can I, can I read it? Will you indulge me? Sure. Because <laughs> it's to your point, and it makes me chuckle. So this is D'Souza talking. While I'm in the trailer... The phone rings and it's then Warner Brothers executive Mark Canton calling Bruce Willis saying, we just had a test screening of Bonfire of the Vanities. You tested through the roof. We're recutting the movie to make your part bigger, D'Souza recalled. So Bruce gets off and says, that was Mark Canton. They just had a test screening of Bonfire the Vanities. I tested through the roof. They're recutting the picture. Joel Silver kicks me and says, "Fucking Mark Canton, just f- his movie and ours. Watch what happens this week. And then all of the other stuff we talked about earlier <laughs> starts to <laughs> unravel. Joel wow. Silver called his shot and the, and both of those movies. Yeah. Bonfire of the Vanities, huh? <laughs> I mean, I'm a Tom Hanks
1: fan. And I'm a Brian De Palma fan. It's, it's a really odd little uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, it's an odd disaster of a movie. But it's uh, it would have been sweet. It,
0: it would have been sweet had you actually picked Bonfire of the Manatees as your guilty pleasure. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that have been great? <laughs>
1: so funny. Uh, well, what about what about Michael Layman, the director? Are you uh, you know, are you a fan is of laymanisms?
0: Well, here is we the <laughs> does he deserve his own shirt? <laughs> Layman, I mean, so I, I'm not a fan of laymanisms per se. I'm a fan of this movie and just one other, um, and then probably half as much a third. And that's about it, right? I didn't like Airheads very much. He's done a lot of TV that I wasn't crazy about, but Hudson Hawk I love, Heather's I adore, and The Truth About Cats and Dogs. Uh, That's a very sweet movie. It's a very sweet movie, and it does have the line, you can love your pets, just don't love your pets, which I use a lot. So I feel like those three movies get some credit for uh, Lehman, and then he just um, i kind of fell off the radar for me. I have. I, I'm sure yeah, I've seen some TV that so. he's done. You know, he did Veronica Mars and Jessica Jones, and um, uh, let's see, Tyrant. Uh, these are all movies or all shows that I watch. Californication, True Blood, uh, American Horror Story. Did three episodes of that. So he's oh, Dexter. I absolutely. I've seen a lot of the TV that he's directed. Uh, but in terms of feeling like Layman has a, deserves his own tour theory shirt, I I don't. I'm not feeling it.
1: Yeah, I don't really either. I mean, even watching this after having seen Heather's countless times, um, I don't feel like I'm seeing any visual or or, or any cues in kind of from one story to the other. Um, And even truth about cats and dogs like the all just those three of his nine film critics feel very different, very different.
0: I'm surprised you didn't bring up 40 days and 40 nights, but uh, maybe I'll just let that go. That Josh, that hit Josh Hartnett vehicle.
1: (laughs) You know, I remember liking My Giant, but I didn't think yeah. much of it. It was kind of a like it and forget it sort of movie.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've forgotten it. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It's it's interesting. And I can see why the critics might have had a harder time walking into this movie, knowing that a writer like Daniel Waters and a director like Michael Lehman, who were involved in a really fantastic and biting uh, film like Heather's, now are delivering this film and then you watch it and go, what the heck am I watching this, this cartoon with real people? It doesn't feel at all like it's from these people. So I can see mm-hmm. why there might have been a little more of that, that shift in the perspective from the critics because of that.
0: And and instead it goes, you know, story credit goes over to Bruce Willis. Uh, and Robert Kraft and Robert Kraft is, I, I, I think, you know, you put him in the music department. He's an exceptional talent, right? He's a, he is a, uh, I, I think he is great. And it, what he does, you'll notice this is his one story credit in his entire career. And I think again, there might be reason for that.
1: Yeah. Kind of, kind of an odd thing to, to yeah. kind of jump into. So. I'm assuming he was buddies with Bruce Willis. I he don't was. know how he, he was yeah.
0: buddies with Bruce Willis, and they, in fact, they wrote that that opening song together, that essentially provides the framing for the story. Little Eddie Hawkins, you know, uh, and yeah. and they 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 tell the backstory of of uh, him as, as sung by Dr. John, and it's a great song, and that is the framework for the the story that Willis wanted to tell, and uh, and there you have it. So you know, if you yeah. get it, get it, you'll enjoy it. Uh, if not, right, right,
1: yeah. You can see why it might be guilty for other people.
0: That's right. <laughs> one thing before we forget, Andy. Before we move completely out of this, uh, Chris Lebenson and Michael Tronic uh, are behind the editing of this movie. And uh, you know, the movie's objectively all over the place. And, but one of the things that they do that they they do have no problem with is cutting these sequences together that look like they're they are completely absolving themselves of any responsibility to space and time. Right. So you have these characters that are falling off a building and they land in a chair in a living room as if everybody's waiting for them. Right. Um, Right. 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 So those kinds of of tricks. And for me, they work really well because I've already bought into the universe of the story. Right. I I think that, um, you know, doing that kind of thing, taking advantage of me once I'm already in the machine, I think works really well. But. Some of the the more critical response to this movie says it's it's cheap. It makes the movie look like it was uh, like they forgot how to tell a narrative story, like they just weren't paying attention and things were just got broken. Um do you did did anything strike you as off with some of those tricks?
1: I'm glad you asked about the editing. That was something I I had some notes on and and forgot I wanted to chat about that. It's um it it's interesting because there are uh some clever films that use editing and uh, as ways to kind of construct the story where it feels like the filmmaker has a, a very clear idea as to how to get from scene A to scene B by doing a really interesting editing trick to get mm-hmm. us there. It's something that Francis Ford Coppola, for example, did really well in Tucker, the man in his dream, where there were some fun editing tricks and camera tricks that would get us from from scene to scene. And I thought that was great. And it showed a filmmaker who knew how to kind of craft a story. I think that there were signs in this film that uh, Michael Lehman, along with these two editors of his, knew what they were doing and crafted it in a way where they could kind of cut it together in a fun way that made it really kind of exciting. And then there were a few times where it happens and I'm like, "What? where I thought we were just this person was just with that other person. And it just kind of kind of it cut out. I felt like there was a story missing. So I can see why some people would have problems with that. But I think that they were also missing some of these grander elements that these people were doing that Made for a film that I think says it's a little more special than what they were judging it for,
0: all right. I'll buy that then i I think so much of that is uh, it, it uh, it's elevated by use of sound too to to kind of you know align some of these more comic stingers uh to to remind you that this isn't real what you're seeing isn't real you're not allowed to take this literally or you're allowed to but you know that wasn't our intention uh yeah. I, the the some of them the uh the sound effects in particular using the uh the the squish sound as the auctioneer shakes his cheeks back and forth i find particularly uh disturbing uh but <laughs> that's not certainly not the only one those it's kinds 40- of things springs and things like that are are really fantastic so yeah they're clearly having fun with it. and speaking of sounds you want to talk about the phone tone i it's well it's not a phone
1: tone in this uh movie but in our man, man flint it was kind of the spy phone mm-hmm. and this was going back to that james coburn uh, spy movies that he was in kind of the james bond spoofs that were uh an awful lot of fun and it was kind of the spy phone that had that sort of ring and it's the code that uh the butler and the the, uh, uh, I, the Mayflower I, I can't remember if it was Darwin or his wife that when they put it on Hudson in that funky it looks like a Simon toy where you got to push <laughs> That's the little exactly color buttons, it. yeah, yeah,
0: and the
1: Simon uh, Right, but it has that it has that tone, and then of course that later is also used in Austin Powers. So I just love that it's a tone that now has kind of uh, an even longer kind of thread of usage, which I really enjoy. In
0: terms of sequels and remakes, <laughs> well, I don't know. Where's, the, you, where's the Broadway stage did, show version? Did you, did you find it? I, I, I would absolutely stand in line for Hudson Hawk, the musical. Well, they already have a couple songs ready for it. Yeah. Uh, the only thing, I, I, I didn't find uh, anything. Did you, I mean, did you find anything no. that I missed? Oh, no, uh, no, no. no. The, the only thing that I found was that uh, Ocean Software... <laughs> made the game Hudson Hawk uh, and they made it for a number of platforms, including super NES and, uh, uh, they they acquired the rights before they had seen the film. Now, I did not play the game when I was uh, a, a lad, uh, and so I had to rely on the YouTube complete walkthrough, which you will find in the show notes. And if you watch that, you'll recognize they had not seen the finished movie before they made the game. That has happened before. This one is particularly... It, it takes a, dis, a a distinct honor in how disconnected it, it just might be uh, from the movie that it supports uh so enjoy that
1: i well this is a description of of it on wikipedia on his journey hawk must face many oddball adversaries including dachshunds that try to throw him off the roof of the auction house janitors photographers killer nuns and a tennis player
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah those must have been from the de cut uh
1: (laughs) How did do an award season? It wasn't a big award movie, as what? you can tell, as you can probably guess, <laughs> but it did fare well at the Razzies. <laughs> it's one of those movies. Uh, yes, in the nineteen ninety six Razzies, it was nominated for six of them, uh, and it won three. It won worst picture. It won Worst Director, and it won Worst Screenplay. Bruce Willis was nominated for Worst Actor, but lost to your favorite, <laughs> Kevin Costner, from a movie we've talked about, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, this is sad. Richard E. Grant was nominated for a Worst Supporting Actor. Uh, he did lose to Dan Aykroyd in Nothing But Trouble. And... <sighs> I know, I know. And uh, Sandra Bernhard was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress, but she lost to Sean Young in A Kiss Before Dying, which I haven't seen, so I can't speak to. Yeah. Interestingly, in the 2000 Razzies, they had an award for Worst Picture of the Decade. This was nominated for that. However, it did lose, unfortunately, to Showgirls, which was the big (laughs) winner for Worst Picture of the Decade. And last but not least, the stinkers. The Stinkers Bad Movie Awards this was nominated for worst picture but it did lose to Nothing But Trouble. So
0: there you have it. All right, well, how to do then at the box office. Please tell me at some point there is redemption for my guilty pleasure. This film
1: did have, surprisingly, a pretty good budget for its time. $65 million, which is about $122 million in today's dollars. It did open on an insanely busy Memorial Day weekend, May 24th, 1991. Opposite, listen to this list here, Backdraft, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, Only the Lonely, Thelma and Louise, Drop Dead Fred, and the documentary Madonna, Truth or Dare. That's that's a lot of new movies that coming out in one yeah. weekend. Um, because of the struggle with its tone and its advertising, it did bomb at the U.S. box office, only making just over $17 million. Luckily, Pete, and this is where your saving grace comes in, it did actually do better internationally, earning $80 million overseas, giving it a total gross of almost $183 million, And it gives it an adjusted profit per yeah. finished minute, Pete, of 638000 There yeah. you go. It is a yes. happy ending.
0: Outstanding. <laughs> Uh oh. all right, I'm done. Let's hang it up. I don't even want to talk anymore. It just ended on a high note. <laughs> all right. Uh this is This actually has been a, a great way to open our guilty pleasure series because I think I, for me at least uh, I feel like I know what uh I, I have a better sense of the guilty pleasure aspect of this movie i This was a a clear critical failure, and i am I consider myself proudly. Uh, amongst the cult that uh, still finds joy in this movie. I find great joy in this movie. I think it's funny. It's a universe that I, um, I I'm uh, like to exist in for my little hour and 40 minutes. And if there is uh, any hope on the horizon, given the, the sort of franchise fever, I would buy into uh, a Darwin and Minerva Mayflower cinematic universe uh, with all my heart.
1: That would be pretty interesting.
0: Uh-huh. It would be
1: very interesting. You can yeah, see it. it's just I'd one
0: movie after another of them trying to take over the world in different it'd be, it'd be wacky like ways. It would be like Boris and Natasha. It is. It's Boris and Natasha. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, or Pinky and the Brain. This is the franchise that never was and I think if if we love it hard enough We might just get it.
1: No, you know, I I enjoyed it. I'm glad you picked it because it's not one that I had sought uh, a rewatch with. But after actually rewatching it, I'm like, you know what? This is really fun. I would totally watch this again. I think the unfortunate thing is they pushed for an R rating Mm-hmm. And they made it into something that I can't really show my kids right now. You know, I'm going to have to wait a while before I can watch it with them, and that's that's kind of uh, you know it's it's a little sad, but you know I, I'm okay. I'll I'll wait until they're older, and then I'll see if they're if they bite.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think we need to take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to this movie in the flickchart catalog where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, this will be a tough one for me. Hudson Hawk or one of my new favorite Cronenberg movies, Scanners.
1: <laughs>
0: oh. oh, no. No, 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 no. Okay. It's, it is not a question. I, I have chosen joy and uh, I know, obviously I it's going to be Hudson Hawk for me. Oh, I, I would pick scanners. I would. I know. I know. I knew you know. it. I knew it from the beginning. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. One, One, two, two
1: three. three. World scissors. domination. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that's me giving it to you because oh. I like you.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Man. That was that was that was my one <laughs> cheat. <laughs> oh, boy. All right,
1: Hudson Ooh. Hawk or Dead Ringers.
0: Well, you know, it's a guilty oh. pleasure for a reason, Andy.
1: I know. I know. You know what? I'm, I will still give you Hudson <laughs> Hawk.
0: I oh my god this is going my way you know, know what i think of the two of us both of us need a 2001 in our catalog and this might be yours <laughs> oh my here oh we my. go uh, all right no next? no no i'm giving it to you i'm giving I know. it to you oh that's good all all right, i want you to click up. click
1: submit and move on before and, you change okay. your mind <laughs> okay all right next up we have hudson hawk or this will be i i am curious whether you'll go with this one I hope you are smart and don't let your guilt take you over. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Oh no,
0: Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Don't worry about that. No, it's okay. Okay, it's okay.
1: all right. Yeah. I was worried for a minute. <laughs> We're okay. Hudson Hawk or or the good, the bad, and the ugly. I gotta go. With good, bad, and the
0: ugly. You know, I'm. Uh, yeah, in spite of what others think of me, I'm not an idiot. Right? I will also go good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs>
1: Oh, good. All right, Hudson Hawk or the Sting? Oh, definitely the Sting. The, the sting. Yeah, although it could have used more singing <laughs> and more stinging. <laughs> uh. Hudson Hawk or more Bruce Willis? Live
0: Free or Die Hard? Oh, I got to go. Live Free or Die Hard? See now on this one, I would go. Uh, in terms of my Bruce Willis fare, I would watch this Bruce Willis over that Bruce Willis. Okay, and well, well, this I don't this feel one bad we are going to go to the yeah. mat. All right, let's do it. <laughs> All right, here we go. Ready. One, One, two, two three. three. Paper. Oh
1: God!
0: I mean, I I don't feel bad about losing, apart from the fact that I lost again. I know it's <sighs> okay. All right,
1: here we go. Hudson Hawk or Seven Samurai? Oh, sorry, Pete. I'm gonna go Seven Samurai.
0: Um, yeah, I will go Seven Samurai. I do. I very much enjoy Seven Samurai.
1: It's just four hours, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> Hudson Hawk or Rocky Balboa? Rocky Balboa. Man, you know we watched all those, and I don't even remember which one Rocky Balboa is. They you... all hit a point where they blended together. Now <laughs> that was the very last of the Rocky ones,
0: right? It was the it was two thousand six. Yeah, I know. Was and, that the one? And no. it, was, okay. it was. It the was the one. It he? was time for some hurting bombs, right? It was who the one where he? he's the
1: old man, and okay. And he's fighting the young cocky kid. We really liked that one. Okay, I'm going to go with Rocky Balboa. I just, I lose track because there were so many. And... All right, Rocky Balboa it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Hudson Hawk or Raise the Red Lantern? Oh, I'm Raise the Red Lantern. Raise the Red Lantern. Well, you should be happy with your guilty pleasure. It landed at spot 110 on our chart, 110 out of 437 or
0: a 75%. Andy, I was completely satisfied after the first two rankings. The, the, the movie ended up in this like part of the list is a huge win for me, so I will take it and go home. Had I lost everything after that, uh, it would have been okay. <laughs> so huge win, uh, and and that's exactly I mean that that feels you know really good to to um, uh, my chart, which as you can imagine, it, it performed well. How did it do on your personal?
1: It actually did about the same as it did for us. It landed in spot twelve oh six out of forty two eighty five, which is about a seventy two percent. So
0: it it fared well. Well, here's a little bit of irony. Mine actually ended at seventy two. Out of 1431, which is a 95 percent. That's right. Ninety five percent for Hudson Hawk. I'm that <laughs> much of a Hudson Hawk lover. Uh, and according to the uh, algorithm, this should be a four and a half star movie over at letterboxcom slash the next reel. Four and a half stars, Andy. I checked letterbox Oh, my. And my my letterbox currently stands at, I, I think, four stars. So this viewing would actually call on me to raise <laughs> my <laughs> star rating by a half star. And I almost want to do it. I'm, I'm really torn. Where does it end up for you? I'm going to predict uh, three stars.
1: No, I had I really had fun and I did have problems with this film, but largely it really worked for me. I found it just delightful. I love the characters and I love the goofiness. And I didn't even mention it also has the, the the goofy, nonsensical everything is great ending where all of a sudden Danny A.L. is alive yeah. again. I'm like, that was really dumb, but Air I kind of like it because Can the,
0: you believe it? <laughs> right <laughs> In
1: Sprinklers inside oh, it's just, It was really funny So I, I enjoyed it I'm giving it four
0: stars And a heart <gasps> Okay I Really I said three stars Because I wanted to get it recorded Where you contradict me And say No I liked Hudson Hawk More than that <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh you Well you win
0: <laughs> I am going to give this I'm going to raise this Four and a half stars And that That other half star Andy That one's for you Oh. Yeah. Look at that. All go. right.
1: So uh it's uh going to be ranked over on Letterboxd and uh there it is. We are going to catch it for this show. <laughs> mm. We're Going to be uh, swing on our own star. Oh, I
0: can't wait. Okay. Well, well
1: next week, I can't wait cuz we're going to talk about my guilty pleasure. Which is a much more recent film. It is uh, is going to be Ben Falcone's Life of the Party with the fantastic and ever enjoyable Melissa McCarthy. McCarthy and I just can't wait uh, to laugh with you about that one.
0: I can't these, film. It's going to be fun. Super recent, and I I haven't seen it. I haven't seen, as it turns out, a lot of Melissa McCarthy movies. I've seen some. Feel like I know a little bit about what I'm getting into, but uh, uh, but my goodness, this is this is new territory for me. So. Uh, you know, be gentle.
1: Well, as you know, I did a Melissa McCarthy I do. <laughs> marathon, and now <laughs> I've seen every one of her films, so I will be able to speak well to, to her. The, the and
0: entire the films. Melissa McCarthy oeuvre.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon
1: giveth. As Amazon always doeth.
0: It does. It does. And today, Amazon has giveth us a couple of one-stars.
1: It certainly did giveth. Uh,
0: I, uh, if you don't mind, I would like to start.
1: Start, please. Right. Start the bidding. This,
0: this comes from C.T. Williams. It is a one-star review, and, and on reading, it feels like um, maybe comes with a dose of regret that there is no zero-stars. Just because I don't understand a film doesn't necessarily make it bad. But not understanding the point of Hudson Hawk at all doesn't make it a good film either. Hudson Hawk is a serious waste of resources and acting talent and not a traditional movie in terms of direction, plot, or effect. In fact, Hudson Hawk is at best a work in progress looking for all of the factors that comprise a true movie. Only diehard Bruce Willis fans and... The movie's So Bad It's Good Brigade will endorse HH. For the rest, it's slow torture and unsurprising that no follow up HH2 or 3 ensued or is ever likely to. Shame! HH is one movie I saw on release that forced me to leave the cinema well before the end. Be warned. HH is a criminal waste of money sober, and unless you have the required intake of alcohol to connect with this ridiculous farce, you, the audience, will be the biggest fool. Ouch. And scene.
1: I felt that one.
0: Yeah, because you're a
1: fool now, and I am too. Well, apparently on Amazon, it definitely attracts people to leave comments after uh, starting the movie but then not finishing it Mm. because I too – have another one mm-hmm. uh, along that same lines from Blue Science, one star, it cannot be watched, period, official, period. <laughs> this is an official review, Pete. Here okay. Here we go. Occasionally, along comes a film that is of such preternatural badness that you cannot describe its awfulness. Thankfully, this isn't that movie, this boisterously jejune enterprise jumps the shark early with a positively cringe-inducing duet sung between Willis and Aiello while robbing a museum. It then goes on to pole vault the polecat, leap the lizard, circumnavigate the crocodile, skip the snake, bypass the barracuda, and last, but by no means least, winch over the whale. Yes, my scriptwriter is Bruce Willis. Mr. Aiello seems happy to have his weight ridiculed in order to feed the wife and kids. I've tried twice to watch this film and was forced to give up again in exactly the same place. It is genuinely unwatchable. The reviews here suggest that it really is impossible to go broke, underestimating the intelligence of the American public. DVD rules! Astonishingly, someone even wrote a several-paragraph thesis on why the script was in the tradition of William Shakespeare. Well, Bill never had much of a sense of comedy, so maybe he's onto something. The trouble is, if all the laws of the known universe are suspended— so is suspense, which is why, at least for me, Monty Python and the Holy Grail grows tiresome after 20 minutes. I have it on good authority that this lamentable effort gets worse when Richard E. Grant turns up. No suspension of disbelief needed there, then. I'm determined to sit through it all one day. I'm thinking of having someone tie me to a chair in front of a television and administer large doses of mescaline every 20 minutes or so. On second thoughts, better make that 10. I'll be able to finish that Noam
0: Chomsky too. (laughs) You get the feeling you just learned what mescaline was. (laughs) 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 I heard somebody use Uh, that word. I think I'm going to put it in a
1: movie review. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That Noam Chomsky. People
0: think I'm super smart for talking about Noam Chomsky and tripping. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amazon.
1: Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform
0: even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us.
1: If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to the slash transistor
0: and check it out. Support our show and support your own show. By going to the nextreal.com/slash transistor, start growing your podcast today.